From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm here because it's the Homer Jones Memorial Lecture, the big event for the St. Louis Fed. Homer Jones is noted for the way he, he took to a whole other level the kind of research that was being done at uh, Federal Reserve Banks around the country. Carlos Garriga then in a very important seat here as the director of research, and I'm glad you had some time. It's a big day for the bank. Buenos dias, happy to be here. Oh. Yeah, it's a big day for the bank, and Homer Jones started about 60 plus years ago, what nowadays bec you know, became Fred our main uh, data tool. Anybody can come to Fred and look at their data. We have more than 800,000 series, and that started as an innovation thing back in the 1960s by Homer Jones, so it's great to honor his you know, memory. Okay, well, one of your areas of research is housing, the housing market, mortgage rates, how it all feeds through the economy. And given what's going on in the U.S. housing market, I, I want to start with that. Uh, particularly, this, this turn in the housing market, 3% on the 30-year fix, roughly, up to about 7%. It feels like it happened in a matter of weeks. It hit the market so hard. When have mortgage rates done this in the past? Is this almost unprecedented, or have we seen something like this? Well, we had high mortgage rates in the past. You don't have to go that far. In the early 2000s, in the, even in the late 90s, we had mortgage rates at this level. But uh, such a rapid turn in a matter of you know two quarters, it's kind of unprecedented. We had a, you know, a sizable increase in the early 2005 or so, but it has been relatively dramatic. But we also had a very rapid increase in inflation uh, in the second half of 2021. So we have to be mindful about how quick inflation escalated. And I think that's just, you know, the appropriate reaction given how quick inflation moved. Sure. Well, and one of the axioms in monetary theory, uh, people say it over and over, monetary policy has long and variable lags. There was not much of a lag between the way uh, the aggressive rate hikes, particularly once the Fed picked up the pace, and what happened to mortgage rates. Uh, has the transmission of monetary policy in some fundamental way changed? Well, I mean, this is kind of a saying from the 1960s, 1970s, and we all understand that the economy is very different 50 years later. We, we have a much more developed financial market, and credit is a key player, so it really transmits to credit-sensitive sectors, but non-credit-sensitive sectors are also connected to credit-sensitive sectors, and the real estate is a classical example. When we increase rates, more, you know, the cost of borrowing goes up, and that reduces the demand for housing. The properties usually stay a bit longer in the market. And there's a lot of purchases that are tied to housing. People that buy a new house, they often buy durable goods and so on and so forth. So that really connects the housing sector to the rest of the economy. And, and, and so the lags, I would argue, have been reduced dramatically. And, and housing is one of the sectors that is more interconnected to the rest of the economy, not only in terms of the value added, but also in terms of the employment. Employment growth in the construction sector also leads employment growth in other sectors in the economy. And that's what we see from looking at the input-output table and it's very different now than it was, you know, about 50 years ago. So we have to be mindful about that. So being mindful of that, how it's changed, what does that mean for the economy? What does it mean for uh, 
monetary policy for, and, and I mean central banks broadly. This is just isn't happening in in the U.S. with the Fed. It's happening with other central banks around the world. It's certainly not unique to the U.S. and, and housing markets. Uh, in essence, are, are similar, but financing markets for housing are very different across countries. Uh, we have across the border Canada that has a very different housing finance market, and we see that throughout Europe. So that really changed the transmission mechanism, and, and that's a, a key feature of how you know financial markets are connected with the real economy. We have to have, you know be mindful about how that changes the transmission mechanism in terms of the size, but also in terms of the speed. A lot of countries now are seeing their homeowners facing sizable resets, whereas in this country the majority of homeowners have fixed rate loans. So in some sense, inflation is really deflating the real value of their payments. So the transmission is going to be very, very different. And we went through a massive refinancing period in the last couple of years. So there's a lot of you know disposable okay. income in the pocket of the households. And, and what about mortgage debt? And what's difference now from the 1970s? Well, the share of mortgage debt relative to disposable income in the 1970s, 80s was substantially lower than what we have right now. Now it's 100 percent, whereas before it was, you know, roughly about 50 percent. So that's just a big change in terms of the volume and also in the composition. Uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, that was when the baby boom generation was entering the housing market. So we were expecting a big increase in real estate prices that didn't happen because of the high inflation. Now we have those households at the tail end of the life cycle, and they're in a very different position. And now we have the millennials getting into the market, plus the COVID shock really changed a whole lot of things. So how does that feed through now when this central bank, the Fed, is raising rates rapidly in, in bigger steps? Is there some risk there with mortgage debt and debt holders? There's no uh, immediate risk on, on, on mortgage debt. Uh, like what we saw in 2007. Uh, what we would expect would be a slow adjustment correction in the housing market, a, a price adjustment downward. We would see, we're already seeing in some areas uh, inventory building up, but we had inventory levels that were abnormally low. The average historical value somewhere between six to eight months, and we had inventory levels down to two months. So what we would expect, just like what we see in vacancies, is just an adjustment, a correction to more normal levels. Now, it could be the case that we are in a new norm. It might be a bit different from what we've seen okay. historically, but we're too far from those levels. So uh, another uh, trend in the last few years has been private investors buying up lots of, of, of real estate, and not just uh, multiple family dwellings, but single family homes. Uh, where does that stand now, and what does that mean for home affordability? Because there, are, you can find individuals who said, "Oh, I, I, I couldn't buy the house for what two hundred fifty-seven thousand dollars that I thought I could. Now those prices are over four hundred thousand because there's so much demand from private investors." What we're going to see now is to what extent some of the trend that really started to pick up in 2009, 2011, in which you know investors move from equity and bond market into real estate market could be reversed. Uh, these investors they provide a fair amount of liquidity across the U.S. landscape, not only in the big cities and vacationing areas, but throughout looking for yields. And what we're finding is that now it could be a perfect opportunity for them to kind of cash out the capital gains that they have accrued pretty much in the last decade. If you bought in 2012 and you have, you know, had substantial cash flows coming out of certain properties because you were leasing them out, now might be a good opportunity for you to kind of liquidate that investment position and move to other markets. And that might be a trend that we may see. And that 
should help to mitigate the affordability crisis. If you bought in 2012, you have plenty of equity in the property. So even if you see a market correction where prices decline, you're still on a pretty good territory. And I would assume they're not the hugest part of the business landscape, but um, in terms of the profitability or how strong they are fundamentally, because there's a lot of concerns now about debt that, that companies are holding. Uh, it seems that if they, if they bought low and are selling high, they're in a good position now. They should be. I would expect so. I mean, I, I'm not concerned about debt positions at this point as we were in 2005 to 2007. That was more of a concern. We had abundant supply coming to the market at a period where you know, inventory was piling up and prices were decreasing and incomes were at risk. We're in a very different situation with the current labor market. We're still a lot of mobility. It's a very strong labor market, one of the ones, the strongest one that we have seen in the last three decades. So that concern coming from the labor market that ultimately funds those mortgage payments does not seem to be there right now, at least what we can see in the near term. And then households have plenty of equity and pretty much everybody had to refinance, did refinance in the last couple of years to pretty low mortgage rates. So final question, if Homer Jones were here and he would, were advising you on your, your next project when it comes to housing, mortgages, this area of the economy, U.S. globally has become so important, what would he be advising you to look at? I mean, that's an excellent question. I guess the, the challenge going forward is going to be international spillovers, how economies bouncing back from this COVID pandemic, plus the underlying structural changes are going on in the economy is going to shape everything. We're seeing geopolitical changes, and everything kind of fits into everything, and that's going to pose interesting challenges. But we do know that you know the U.S. economy is one of the strongest ones globally, and we're seeing that with the strength of the dollar. When things are uncertain, uh, the dollar picks up a lot of the strength. So I would say that we would still maintain that position. And, and, and that's kind of good news for us. All right. Well, Carlos Garriga, thank you so much for joining us today here at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis on this very important Homer Jones Memorial Lecture Day. Un placer. Always uh, you know, happy to have you. Igualmente. <laughs> All right. Paula, Matt, uh, having a great time starting the day off with a very interesting conversation and, of course, we'll be uh, continuing throughout the day. I'm very happy to welcome to Bloomberg Radio at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis on this very important day when they uh, honor one of the top economists in the country with the Homer Jones Memorial Award and he gives a lecture. Uh, Eswar Prasad, as you said, professor of Cornell University, senior fellow at Brookings and the author of another new book, The Future of Money, How Digital Trans uh, Revolution is transforming currencies and finance. On a busy day for you, glad you could find the time, Eswar. It's a pleasure, Kathleen. So you've written papers, two books about the dollar, its role in the world. What drew you to cryptocurrencies and all the changes it's, it's doing and, and actually signaling? You know, I hang out with central bankers a lot, and a few years ago, questions started arising about what the digital revolution might mean for banking, finance, and particularly for central banks. So my plan was to think about central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, and what role they might play in finance. But it quickly became apparent to me that one needed to think about basic developments taking place in financial markets as a result of technology, which goes under the term fintech, then to think about cryptocurrencies and what they might mean for finance, and then central bank digital currencies, and what it might all mean for the structure of financial markets and institutions, central banking, and indeed the international monetary system, which is why what was meant to be a slim little volume turned uh -huh. into a 500-page tome. 
I want to jump into that, but I just have to ask you quickly, were you a little bit horrified as you saw Bitcoin shooting up as high as it got, falling back down, knowing that a lot of small investors who maybe have invested much were getting swept along in maybe a not so good way into this uh, cryptocurrency world? You know, Kathleen, one of the great joys in writing this book was learning about the technology underlying Bitcoin. And it's a phenomenal technology if you think about what Bitcoin is trying to accomplish, being able to conduct transactions without using a trusted intermediary, without even revealing your digital identity, actual identity, and just using your digital identity. It's phenomenal. But Bitcoin was meant to be a medium of exchange. Instead, it's become a speculative financial asset. And as you've pointed out, many people seem to have gotten taken in by the razzle-dazzle of the new <laughs> technology, don't understand what risks that they're taking on. And if you're a wealthy investor uh, uh, willing to take a roll of the dice, that's one thing. If you're an unsophisticated investor putting a lot of your life savings on the line, that is uh, a worrying proposition. And certainly uh, the Bitcoin... Uh, price volatility has given us a lot to worry about. Well, you know, central banks concerned about financial stability of decentralized payment systems, uh, st stable coins and how they could displace cash, you know, in traditional systems. At the same time, they're moving very slowly, carefully, I might even say reluctantly to develop CBDCs, central bank digital coins. Yeah, I think all central banks um, rightly think about the dangers of stepping in where the private sector could provide services equally well. And there is clearly a need for better payment systems, both domestically, between consumers, between consumers and businesses, between businesses, and also at the international level where there are huge frictions in terms of payments. So when you think about uh, cryptocurrencies like stable coins, they're trying to meet a real need. And of course, in many developing countries and advanced economies around the world, the private sector is doing a great job of providing low-cost, easy-access mm -hmm. digital payments. So the question is, what is the value proposition for a CBDC? And I think central banks are rightly concerned that it could lead to some risks of financial in uh, instability, disintermediation of the banking system, perhaps private sector innovation in terms of payments being limited. So they're treading very cautiously. But one thing that's clear is that we definitely need better payment systems because, after all, that's the key lubricant of any market economy. And if it doesn't work well and efficiently, there are things that could be improved. So how big is the threat of these digital payment systems to commercial banks? It's the, from the beginning, it's been, oh, oh, if people don't put their deposits in J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and other places, that's going to be a problem. So stable coins are an interesting um, element of this discussion. And of course, they could pose a threat to banks if they become seen as deposit-taking uh, institutions. Now, the interesting irony of stablecoins, of course, is that they uh, completely vitiate what Bitcoin was supposed to accomplish, which is a departure from the dependence on fiat currencies. Stablecoins get their stable value precisely by being backed up by stores of fiat currencies. But many stablecoin issuers do provide interest rates, and there is a concern that if people see stablecoins as being more functional in terms of payment mechanisms, and perhaps even offering higher interest rates and bank deposits, then you could get a disintermediation of the banking system. You could also have instability in the financial system coming from stablecoins themselves. That risk, I think, is somewhat mitigated by the fact that stablecoins need to be backed up one-to-one. -one. Right. So they're, in effect, narrow banks. It's not a huge threat. But there are other risks to the financial system we need to worry about. You know, it's interesting because we look at emerging markets, developing economies, and all the advantages they could get from these digital payment systems, stable coins, et cetera. But you see some risks, I don't know if everybody thinks about, to emerging markets in this transition. 
You know, uh, friction-free international payments are a wonderful thing for economic migrants sending remittances back to their home countries, for small and medium enterprises trying to access global pools of capital, for investors looking for international portfolio diversification opportunities. But you could have digital versions of the dollar, of the renminbi being easily available in the future. You could even have stable coins issued by major corporations um, such as Amazon and perhaps one day Meta will revive its stable coin project. These currencies, either private or official, might be trusted more than the currencies issued by non-credible central banks um, uh, in small open economies. So there is an existential threat, I think, to some of these smaller currencies, especially currencies in economies that are mismanaged or where the central banks are not credible. So there's, their currency could get tanked? That's right. It could be a real shakeout because everybody in the country might decide that it's easier to trust a currency issued by one of the major economies or even one of the major corporations because they have deeper pockets and are more trustworthy than the domestic central bank. So this could be a problem. And dollar dominance. I think maybe some people are sort of hoping that this will push the dollar back a bit and their currencies can rise and that's going to happen. What do you think? That is the great hope that perhaps digital um, technologies will provide a way to displace a dollar in its medium of exchange or store of value function. Perhaps if the digital yuan were to be easily available, you could see it getting a little more traction in international payments, but the reality is that people are not going to trust a currency just because it's available in digital form. They care about what lies behind that currency, you know, deep and liquid financial markets, but more importantly, what is necessary to engender the trust of foreign investors and domestic investors. There is an institutional system, such as an independent central bank and uh, a system of uh, checks and balances. All of these are really important to inspire the trust of foreign investors. I don't think there is any other economy um, that has the financial and economic might the U.S. does and is also backed up by an institutional framework of this mm -hmm. sort. So I don't think the dollar is going to be significantly threatened anytime soon. Getting outside the crypto realm for a minute, uh, strong dollar, getting stronger all the time. Uh, IMF World Bank meetings last week, it's a concern. They, they say, go ahead, Fed, keep doing those rate hikes. But uh, what kind of risk do you see? What are your concerns about this dollar that continues to strengthen what it means for the rest of the world? Well, it's a sign of two things. One is that the U.S. economy has slightly better prospects, even though not great prospects, relative to the rest of the world. And there is a uh, desire for safety right now. There is a great deal of financial and economic turmoil around the world, and people still look to the U.S. dollar for safety. So this is a, um, a bit of a paradox because a strong dollar helps the U.S. a little bit at the margin. It makes imported goods a little cheaper here, but the positive effect is not that large. But for countries around the world whose currencies are depreciating against the dollar, it means more domestic inflationary pressures because lots of international trade is still priced in dollars, so the prices in domestic currencies of those goods go up. The cost of financing debt um, that is, uh, uh, and servicing debt that has been denominated in dollars is very high. So for the rest of the world, it's a huge negative. So this asymmetry is a real problem for the world economy. But right now, there doesn't seem to be any easy way out of it because the Fed has to do what it needs to do because otherwise we could get higher uh, rate hikes and even more economic pain down the road. Now, you, Eswar Prasad, are giving the Homer Jones Memorial Lecture today, quite an honor. Is, is there some point you're making in that lecture? You can't tell us exactly what you're saying that, that we would like, you'd like to leave us with today. 
I think it's going to be an interesting era of competition um, in various forms of money. Um, as we just discussed, I think there is going to be competition between privately issued monies and central bank fiat currencies in the medium of exchange function. Even at the international level, I can see digital versions of some currencies beginning to, uh, you know, uh, at least compete with the dollar more effectively. So a lot more interesting currency competition. And as an economist, I think competition is a good thing. All right. Aswar Prasad, thank you for joining us. Professor at Cornell University, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and the author of a new book, The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. Thank you for joining us today here at the St. Louis Fed on Bloomberg Radio. It's been my pleasure, Kathleen. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.